to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Well, here we are in our Luke series. We're in Luke chapter 12 tonight. And, uh, you know, last Sunday was a really, really cool uh, Sunday. I'm not sure that any of us could have made it to this because it was the time of the day. It was 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. But uh, New Life Church, in partnership with some other uh, churches in town, and, and thanks to some big uh, uh, donations and, and um, buildings and time and all that stuff, Last Sunday, we opened, officially opened our very first Dream Center of Colorado Springs. It's um, an amazing thing, and, and, and maybe you saw the video of it. If you missed it, I wonder, you could probably still find that video on the New Life website, but it's, um, it's basically a clinic that, that gives uh, free medical care to women who are uninsured or underinsured, and uh, it's a remarkable thing. Stories are already coming in. They had a soft launch uh, prior to this official launch last Sunday, but this week was kind of the first full week of it uh, opening. And I was thinking, you know, this is, as I was reading through Luke chapter 12 um, and, and thinking about that event and then thinking about a lot of the other stuff that we have uh, going on here at New Life, you may, may or may not be familiar with this, but you'll find out a little more about this in the next uh, coming months. But uh, New Life as a church has a partnership with an organization called uh, Children's Hope Chest, and they do uh, orphan projects in different parts of the world. In fact, a couple of our, our folks here on Sunday night work uh, for Hope Chest, and, uh, and there's, um, there, there's there, there, our specific partnership with them it, it involves a community in Swaziland, and uh, the New Life kind of is sending teams over, and there's a lot of uh, work that's being done to actually help, uh, and, um, and then maybe you've even heard of this, a couple, a couple of years back, our, our student ministry started this thing uh, called Heartwork, and now it's gone beyond uh, our student ministries, and it helps other student ministries do this, but it's where young people, students, are forming little groups and, uh, and then getting um, them connected with different projects around uh, the world, whether it's uh, digging wells or providing clean water or education, all those kinds of things. Now, if you've been around New Life even just a little bit, you've kind of heard maybe some of this stuff, and you know a little bit about what's going on. And, and maybe somewhere in, in the back of your mind, it occurred to me, maybe somewhere in the back of your mind there's this question, uh, and it's a question that nobody really wants to voice because you don't want to be that guy. But it's this question that's sort of like, eh, Why? Why are we doing this? Um, I, mean, I mean, who cares? I mean, does it really matter? I mean, are we getting people saved? And isn't that sort of the, the thing? And if we're not, I mean, do, do we have any numbers of souls saved? And uh, that's nice about a dream center and offering medical care, and or that's nice about what we're doing overseas. But, but, but really, who cares, right? I mean, I, we just, and nobody would voice it that way because it sounds kind of heartless, you know? Um, but maybe deep down inside you've, you've wondered, okay, why, why does the church care about this stuff? Is this like a new trendy kind of thing, you know? And, and some of you have maybe been around the, the, the Christian thing in America for uh, enough years that, that, that you're thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen this pendulum before, you know? It used to be the social gospel back in the 70s, and then now here we are again, you know? And, and is that what this is? Are we kind of swinging this pendulum uh, just sort of along for the ride? Why does the church care about justice, about the oppressed, about the poor. When I talk with people about this, you, you tend to hear a couple of different theories surface, uh, and most of the time it's people just guessing. This first sort of theory of why we, we do this, 
probably comes from people outside the church world looking in, uh, looking at us and saying, oh yeah, yeah, I bet this is all about saving face. Now, this is the church's attempt to save face. We're just trying to sort of uh, uh, say, hey, 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 look, we, we're doing this. Okay, this sign is not supposed to be up quite yet. Sorry, that just gave away a major climactic moment of the talk, but just pretend you never saw that. Sorry, Jesse, I didn't tell you. Um, you didn't see that. And so maybe the, the impression is, oh, 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 this is just the church trying to save face. And, and oh, look at evangelicals in America. I mean, they've had this reputation of being anti this and anti that and against abortion and against gay marriage. And so, and so evangelicals have this hateful reputation. And now they're trying to be kinder and gentler. That this is really sort of a PR campaign, isn't it? I mean, isn't this Christians just trying to put on a, a sweeter face, a little less Bible thumping, a little, a little more Mother Teresa, you know? Just sort of a PR campaign. If, if this is why we think we're doing this, it's not going to carry on very long. Because if it is just a pendulum swinging, save face kind of attempt, us to be sort of a new kind of Christian or a new, you know, uh, next Christians, gentler, kinder, more justice concerned. If that's all it is, then number, number one, it'll fade with time because it's a trend. But secondly, uh, I suggest that if we're doing these sorts of things to gain respect from the world, let me just let you down gently, it's probably never going to come. And there will probably never be a day where we do enough good works that people will say, oh, wow, wow, the church is just so great, we just love them, let's all become Christians, you know? What if you do these things and people still misconstrue it and say hateful things about you? Oh, well, I don't know. So... This can't be a strong enough reason. Theory number two, maybe again, people looking from the outside, or maybe this is from within the church world even, is I know, I know, we do these things because we're trying to solve a problem. We're trying to solve the problems, capital P, the big problems out in the world today. Now, there's something kind of inspiring about this language, and there's something kind of true about this language. Mathematically, if you look at the number of orphans in the world and the number of Christians in the world. You, say, well, you know what? We could, yeah. Or you look at poverty or you look at these issues and you think, you know what? There's enough wealth here in these countries if we redistribute. And, and a lot of those efforts are good. But if it's our sole motivation, if this is the engine that drives us and our compassion and our concern, then is it enough? Solving problems. The trouble with life is it just doesn't work like a math equation. There are too many variables. And so you may say, okay, look, we're, we're, we've got it down. We're going to make this work. We're going to make this happen. We're gonna make... And then all of a sudden, God forbid, another earthquake happens or another tsunami happens or another wicked dictator rises and, and embarks on a mission of genocide. And then we say, ah, yeah, I guess it doesn't work. And a lot of times this is what happens to us is you start with, big dreams and noble ideas and say, so we're going to help this, we're going to do this, and doggone it, we could fix that situation, and we're the church, and we could do And so we go for it, and we do it, and we're going, and then, major setback. And what happens so many times to, to, to Christians is we start out with this energy, we start out with this passion, we start out with this idealism, and then something happens that disillusions you, and you say, you know what, it just doesn't work. World is too messed up. The situation's too complex. I don't know how to solve this. We don't know how to end this. We don't you know. And then what ends up happening is because this was our driving motivation, 
solving problems, you tend to kind of pull back in and say, you know what, we can't fix any of that, let's just take care of our family. And let's just do this, and let's just have better vacations, and more in our IRAs. And Nothing wrong with any of those things. But we stop sort of having this outward-looking uh, vision or compassion or motive because we think it doesn't work. You've heard that? You've been there? Where you say, you know what, I don't know how, I can't fix it, I can't solve it, so, oh well. I'd like to suggest tonight from this text in Luke 12 that we're going to look at in a moment, I would like to suggest a different lens. A different lens for looking at this subject, a different lens for exploring this subject to say, all right, so why is it? Why is it that as New Life Church in particular and as the church universal in general, why are the people of God concerned about this? Why do we do this? Or is this just something cute we kind of do on the side? Luke 12 as a whole is a series of warnings and encouragements. Uh, and if you kind of look, you know, if your Bible has these little headings that are, you know, no doubt been added on later, but you can kind of even just look at it and see that Jesus is talking about things that sound apocalyptic, that sound end times-ish. And so half the crowd's like really excited about that, ooh, end times. And the other half the crowd's like, yeah, end times, I don't, I don't get it, you know. But this backdrop here of Luke 12, let me say a little bit about this. They were not, the Jews of the first century were not looking for a way to get from earth to heaven. Their prayer was not, hey, 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 how can we get from earth to heaven? In fact, if you read the Psalms and you read the prophets, and particularly in Isaiah and all of that, the cry of, 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 of the Jewish people, the people of Israel, is to say, when will the God of heaven come to earth? When will Yahweh, the Lord of heaven's armies, Yahweh, the God, the creator, the maker of heaven, when will he act on earth? When will he restore? When will he deliver? When will he rescue the oppressed? Like the psalm we read tonight in our Old Testament reading. The psalmist says in this bold message paraphrase, you know, I dare to believe the luckless will get lucky someday in you. You've got to know I love that verse. Lucky, you know, anyway. Orphans will not be orphans. And, and, and the psalmist is saying this, saying, hey, look, I know it. One day you're going to act. Well, if you know the story of Israel from the Old Testament through this little, you know, 400-year-ish period after exile, it's a sad story. Not a lot works out well. They find themselves under oppression. And Jewish theology begins to develop a little wrinkle to it, a little, another dimension to it that we didn't see as much in the Old Testament, and that's this. They were faced with a problem. Because God said, if we do this and do this and do this, then things were supposed to work out. Well, what happens when they return from exile, they're worshiping again, they got the temple built, they got the walls set, and they're still being overrun by this nation and that nation. And, and, and so they had to sort of develop that. Anybody ever been in a place when you're wondering if God's really going to do what he said? Nope, none of you can relate to that probably. And so the, 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 as a Jewish faith, they're kind of saying, all right, so either we throw away this thing and say, Yahweh is not faithful, this isn't true, he's not going to act, or they say, okay, he's going to act, but there must be like a different timeline, there must be this different thing. And so they begin to develop this idea of this age, this present age, and then this age to come. And all of this is kind of, you see this in the Gospels, Jesus is talking about the age to come, this age and the age to come. And, and you're saying, well, where, where did that language come from? 
It develops because they're saying in their minds, okay, look, if, if God is not, if we don't see it now, it must mean that there's a later, there's an age to come. But Jesus does something very strange to all of this thinking. Instead of a clean break to things, instead of saying, all right, one age is going to end and a new age is going to begin, he says, you know, actually, one age is going to end while a new one is beginning and you're going to kind of live in this twilight for a long time. Twilight, now you're thinking about vampires. Um, <laughs> Paul picks up on this and he kind of says, look, we're kind of people living like this new thing has begun, like a new day has already dawned, but there's this previous day that's still kind of coming to a close. We're in this in-between hours. That's, have that in the back of your mind as you listen to these verses in Luke 12. Luke 12, verse 35. Be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It'll be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, which is a stunning thing to say, and will come and wait on them. It'll be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward Daybreak, dawn, there's that image again. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. This is a, he's now using a different metaphor to say, you must also be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And Peter asks the question that many of us are wondering right about now, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? In other words, did, were we supposed to get that? Because we didn't. <laughs> Is there going to be a test? It's kind of an important question. And Jesus responds by saying, Peter, let me tell you a story. Don't you hate that, you know? Simple yes or no, Lord. Eh, let me tell you a story. And the Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them food allowance at the proper time? Now, all of these images of a house and master and servants, these are images from a Roman household in the first century. Jesus is not, this is not the place for him, for him to uh, critique or comment on whether or not that was a good thing or, or, or not. This is Jesus just working with their symbols of everyday life. Look, you know the, the, these images. But in the second parable, there's not just a master and servants. There's a steward who's one of the servants, but he's kind of in charge of other servants. It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, eh, my master's taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the other servants. This is, I'm sorry, it's obviously Jesus using some hyperbolic language. Hyperbole, he's using kind of the absurd to say, this is the epitome of a irresponsible steward, okay? This is like the guy who, yeah, he shouldn't, this is not the way to do it. Beats the other servants, both men and women, to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he's not aware of, and Jesus, again, with this extreme language, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows, now I imagine, sorry, if Jesus was pulling images from our 21st century, maybe America, that he, he might have, I painted the picture of a CEO in an executive boardroom and a bunch of managers there with one of them, Donald Trump style, saying, you're fired. 
In this you know, cultural view, it's, he's going to cut him to pieces. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving of punishment will be beaten with few blows. Is Jesus saying relative judgment here? From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Now Jesus is kind of answering Peter's question. Okay, Lord, is this for us or for everyone? And Jesus is saying, yes. (laughs) For everyone... They're going to be held accountable for something. But for you guys who are hanging out with me, you're going to be, there's a lot more that's being asked of you. What I want us to, to recognize tonight is that all of us who follow, are following Jesus and belong to Jesus, you are not just, I, I think, you are not just servants in the earth, the Father's house, the whole world. You're stewards in it. You're like the second parable. You're the people who are stewards of it. And if I were to say to you, stop for a minute and think about the things you are steward over. Which rooms in the, in the master's house are, are you entrusted with? What's the, what are the relationships? What's the time? What's the money? What's the stuff? What's the influence, maybe? Where is your steward role? Which place of the master's house are you the steward over now when i think about both these parables and say all right well if there were a word that we could maybe use and say look this is kind of the word that that maybe sums up or expresses the the, uh, the heart of what jesus is saying in both of these parables it's this word i think anticipation anticipation to say get ready expect it there is a master He's gone away and it feels like this house is abandoned, but there really is a master. Get ready. But this word anticipation, I think, has two shades to it, two angles to it. In the first parable, which we won't spend much time on tonight or any time on tonight, I just wanted you to see it for the whole context, or as Dr. Todd would say, the pericope of the verse. Yeah, just throw that in. You can ask him what that means. Um, Sorry, now I got distracted. The first parable shows a kind of anticipation that is all about preparation. Because Christ is returning, we anticipate Christ's return by getting ready. We're going to do certain things. We're going to get ready. It's more of a preparation kind of angle on anticipation. But the second parable shows a different type of anticipation. It's the anticipation that says, we're going to anticipate Christ's return by living in the present in light of what Christ will do in the future. Now put this up, leave this up there for a bit, Jeff, if you would. And just kind of, you write this down and think about it. So to do in the present what Christ will do, in light of what Christ will do in the future. Because you know what's coming, you live a certain way now. Now when you think of this, this kind of sounds like, okay, Glenn, is this just like some abstract theology thing? I mean, do, do any of us know what this looks like in real life? I think we do. One of the ways we know it is by sports. Now, this is a not a very good throwing football. It's kind of soft. I suppose if I were to chuck it out to you, it's probably better that I'm using this one instead of a hard one. But I'm kind of grateful that uh, the NFL ended its lockout. You know, I'm really happy that people could figure out how to split $9 billion of revenue a year. and It's, it's really great. But as a football fan, I'm happy. I'm excited about that there's going to be football again. 
And this football shows my favorite team, the Broncos, you know. And, uh, yeah, anybody? No? Yes? Yeah? All right. Um, and without, you know, with sidestepping the whole Tebow Orton uh, hoopla, you know, there is this excitement about it. Now, in football, you, you tell a wide receiver to anticipate a pass, right? You say a good wide receiver knows how to anticipate the pass. And, and, and anybody who, who watches the game or, you know, even casually, you kind of know what this means. If I said, okay, if I'm the quarterback and I said to the wide receiver, okay, the play is you're going to run a 10-yard in. Now, Calvin, where are you? Calvin, you're here. You're a college wide receiver. Okay, 10-yard in. Now, Calvin, if I said this to you and I say, hi, are you going to stand there? You're not going to stand there, right? What are you going to do? You're going to run the route. You're going to run 10 yards and you're going to break in, right? Now, what if I said, okay, hi, and he's still standing there. I'm like, hey, are you going to go? And the receiver says, you haven't thrown it yet. I haven't thrown it yet because you're not there yet. Yeah, but I'm not going to. There's no ball there. You're right here. Like, I know, but to anticipate the pass, you've got to go ahead of time where the ball will be. You see this? A good receiver is going to run his route saying, I know the ball is going to be right there. I'm going to get just past the linebackers and just underneath the safeties. Uh, uh, and, and, and just in that little soft spot of the zone. And I'm going, to, I'm going to break across the middle, and there's no ball there. And the quarterback's going to throw it. They kind of, and the, the, best, the guys who are the best at this, they, they, they throw, they, he lets go of the ball before the receiver's there. The receiver's on his way there, and boom, it hits him in stride. On his way. Why? Because he anticipated the pass. There is a kind of anticipation that means going in advance because you know what's coming. Beginning to do something ahead of time because you know what's coming. You've seen the future, and so you're saying, I know, the defense doesn't know, but I know, and so we're going ahead of time. Now, I thought perchance they may, may be some people who are not football fans. The Lord save your soul. Um, and so I thought of a different, just kidding, I thought of a different maybe metaphor. Now, this morning when I spoke, I, it actually uh, had a blanket that was mid-crochet, and so as soon as I pulled it out with the crochet stick, People laughed. Um, but this is a nice blanket. And, 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 and some of you, you know, uh, let's say, and I don't know, I guess this could be a, a blanket that someone actually crocheted. Um, but let's say you're uh, expecting, you're pregnant, and you're a woman getting ready for your house. Now, we have three kids, and I remember, the, you know, when we had Jonas, you know, about two, almost two years ago, the, the converting the baby room from girl baby room to boy baby room and painting the pink walls blue and hanging little toy airplanes from the, you know, there's things that you do. Now, if you're the kind, does anybody here knit or crochet? Yeah, oh, good, all right. So, so maybe the, you, you'll relate to this, but, but you're sitting there and you're working on this blanket, and sometimes, I'm told, something happens to a pregnant woman as she's getting ready and she's doing all this stuff because it's not just preparation, but it all of a sudden becomes anticipation. And you're, look, you're knitting this thing, you're crocheting, and you look at it, and all of a sudden... You can see the baby, and you can visualize, you can picture this little one there, and you start talking to this pile of wool or yarn, like, oh, it's okay, mommy loves you, you know, and you're doing this thing, I don't know, whatever, but you're starting to see it. In other words, you're, you're going there in your mind. You're, it's not there yet. Now, what if you said, well, I'm not going to make a blanket, the baby's not here yet. Okay, you see where this is going. 
To anticipate something is to go there in advance, to, 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 to already start there. Okay, we're already going to act like we have this. We're getting used to it. We're getting ready. Part of anticipating is going there in advance. This, I think, is the idea of these parables. Look, the master's going to come, and you're not going to know when. Start running his house the way he would run his house. To return to our question, why do we care? about justice. There are many good biblical ways to answer it, but from this text tonight, I think the answer I want to suggest to you or the response, the framework I want to suggest to you is we're not saving face. We're not solving problems. We're lifting up a signpost of what Christ will do. We're standing, we're planting a sign in the ground that says, look, this is what Christ will do. It's a signpost of what's coming. Now, I lived in Tulsa for about four and a half years, and um, the last year or two of, of our time there, my time there, uh, I started to visit out here, develop some friends, was meeting some people, and considering the possibility of maybe moving out here. And so a, a couple of times, two, three, maybe four times, I've made the drive from Tulsa to Colorado Springs. And you know, if you've ever done this drive, there's this little stretch of road on I-70 through a lovely state we like to call Kansas. And nothing against Kansas, but it's not Colorado, you know, you know. And, and, and after mile after mile after mile of the same thing, no offense to Kansas, you start to wonder, did, have we seen this? Did we just pass that red barn or that gray silo or that hay bale? Did we, have we driven? No, no, yeah, we're still, you know, still going, still going. And keep going. And finally you cross the state line. And you're going a bit more and a bit farther. You're on Highway 24 now. You're making your way down. And all of a sudden you see this nice little green sign. And the sign says, Colorado Springs, 20 miles. Hallelujah. And you're like, I think I can see the mountains. You can't really, but you know, I think I do. Yeah. You start to, you know, ah, yes, here we go. You step on it a little bit more on the gas, within the speed limit, of course. You know, Use your way. See, a signpost brings hope because it tells you that you're almost there. It tells you that something is arriving. Something's getting closer. Throughout the Gospels, we've been talking about this as we've studied the book of Luke. Jesus doesn't do miracles to impress people. I think we, we know this now. He doesn't do miracles as a party trick. This is not Jesus saying to his buddies, hey, check this out. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know. Everything Jesus does, or at least what the re- Gospel writers record of his miracles, what do they call them in the New Testament? Signs. Signs. They're signs? What are they signs of? They're signs that the kingdom of God is arriving. They're signs that say, look, you've been waiting for the God of heaven to act. Guess what? He's here. Look, every blind person who's healed, every lame person who walks, every hungry person who's fed, the feeding of the 5,000, all of these different things. Everything Jesus is doing, every miracle He's doing, is a way of saying, here's a signpost. The kingdom of God already arriving 
here you are. To flip the analogy, it's not us approaching, but God actually moving to us. Imagine that. Stuck in Kansas, and the signpost keeps saying, Colorado's 20 miles away. It's coming to you. What? That's sort of what's happening here. A signpost. I think that every time we bring a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, we're lifting up a signpost. We're saying there's hope that's coming. Every time we go to the hospital and visit someone who's sick or take food over to a neighbor or ask someone how they're doing or stop and offer a smile, listen to someone pour their heart out to you. Every time you do that, as followers of Jesus, you're putting a signpost in the earth and you're saying something. You're saying there is a master of this house There is a God who will return. And we are His stewards. And no, you know, it's not an arrogant thing. It's not like a braggy thing. But it's just a, hey, look, I know there's people who think this is an abandoned house, but it's not. It's the Master's house. And we're stewards of it. And here's a sign of hope. Here's a sign of life, of hope. Something different is going on. In a very real way, I think that each of us are a living signpost. Our lives itself are a living signpost of what God has done. In Isaiah, Isaiah says this thing looking forward. He says, one day, behold, you know, he has God talking to him and God says, behold, I will make a new heaven and a new earth. And you have John in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, picking up on this and says, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. In short, we could say that's new creation. Paul says something really remarkable. He says, you know what? Yes, one day this creator God will restore and there'll be newness, restoration, new creation. But you know what? When you say yes to Jesus now, that new creation in the future comes breaking into your heart in the present. Whoa! So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, Behold, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Oh, Paul, wait, wait. New heaven, that's coming later. True. But in you, because you're in Christ, the future's already happened. Ooh, what? You are from the future. <laughs> you belong to the future. No lie. Something from the future has been pulled forward into the present. Anyone who is in Christ, the new creation has come. Whoa! The old has gone and the new is here. Do you realize what a marvelous, mysterious miracle that is? Some of you, maybe you've never thought about the gospel that way. You've you just sort of heard that there's some place with fire that, that you're, you're maybe going to go to. And so, you, oh, okay, I better, you know, it's like the gospel's like fire insurance. But this, there's something true about that, that in Christ we are rescued from judgment and all that. That is true, but maybe another way of looking at it is to say, 
that in Christ you get to experience now the restorative work that he's going to do then. Now that's pretty cool. So you are a living signpost, a living witness, a piece of this that's already different. Something about you is already different. Um, I've, uh, I grew up in Malaysia. Many of you know this. You know, most of you know this. And um, it's a long flight to get there. You know, Gary travels to Asia a lot. He was just in India. And there's people that are, that I know many of you that travel all the time. You've done, you've done lots of these international flights. Dr. Todd to Africa and, and uh, Scott to Asia a bunch of times and all this stuff. You know, I've, I've crossed the Pacific Ocean 25 times now. And I counted on one of those long 30-hour flights, you know. It's like you kind of get bored after a while and you start, well, how many times have I done this? You know, 25. Now, every time you fly to, uh, well, every time I fly to Malaysia, I always go over the Pacific. And um, whenever I'm leaving LAX or San Francisco Airport, whichever one it happens to be, it's usually always a late flight. It's a flight somewhere around 11.30 at night, maybe midnight, you know. And uh, th- those, those international flights usually are. And you get on the plane and... And, uh, you know, they say, we're going to dim the cabin lights in just a moment. If you, if you would like to read, you can turn on the reading light above you. And, uh, you know, and they're, they're, they're basically setting you up to go to sleep. And they're saying, hey, we're, we'll serve you stuff, but it's going to be a bit later, so just chill out and relax. And several times I've thought to myself, okay, Malaysia's about 14 hours ahead of us here in, in Colorado, 15 hours when we do the, our time change here and. And um, I think, okay, so I'm leaving at midnight. Everybody around me thinks that it's nighttime. They're dimming the cabin lights. People are taking their shoes off. It's getting a little stinky. You're getting the blanket. Trying to get as cozy as you can in economy, you know, for a 12-hour flight to Tokyo, you know, 15-hour or whatever. And, um, and I'm telling myself, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not midnight. It's two in the afternoon where I'm going. And so while everyone around me thinks it's night, I've got to tell myself it's day. Do you know what it means to be the people of God? It means you live by a different time zone. You live by a different time zone. I don't know if anybody said that to you this way before. Carl Barth, many of the great theologians have said it this way, that what is different about Christians and and what shapes our ethics and our morality and all that stuff is is principally time. Time's different. You're living in a different time zone. You belong to the future, and so you live differently now. If ever anybody says to you, your Christian values seem kind of old-fashioned, you can just tell them, actually, I think they're kind of futuristic. (laughs) Don't do that. Annoying, obnoxious. That's just a, you know, a joke for us. Anyway, <laughs> but I think, I, think this is, I think this is helpful to say, okay, look, all around us the world says it's night, it's dark, there's despair, there's no hope. We think all is lost, all we see is suffering and death and disease and, and poverty and oh my goodness, it's so bleak, it's just night, it's just night, it's just night. And we, the people of God, stand up and say, no, the sun has risen, a new day has dawned, something is coming, the master will return to his house one day. That's why we are people of hope. That's why we live differently. That's why we can open a dream center or do this or do that and say, God, may this be by your spirit a sign of hope.
Now, there's going to be people that say, well, Glenn, how many problems does that solve? Probably not many. Is that really going to fix the issues? Probably not. Well, Glenn, and, and then you have people that kind of work it out with this business plan and say, well, now, listen, I think if we do this, we can get X amount of souls saved. We do. Listen, the kingdom of God is not a business plan. The kingdom of God is not a human project. The kingdom of God is the work of Jesus the King. It comes when He comes. It came when He came. And the kingdom comes again in its fullness when He returns. Some pressure off of you tonight. You and I don't build the kingdom. Nothing in the Bible tells us to build the kingdom. We don't build it. You don't expand it. You don't build it. Oh, okay, maybe I'll just take a nap. No, no, no. <laughs> we, what do we do? We announce it. We announce it. We anticipate it. How? By lifting up little signs of hope. It could be anything from reading to your children at night, eating a meal with a stranger out of kindness, going to, one, to Jeff and Michelle and maybe next week and giving them a gift card to Walmart for diapers or something. Any of these young couples, you know, the Medinas, they, they didn't ask me for any of this, but you, you know what I'm saying? Little signposts of hope to say, hey, just want to take you out for dinner. Can we bring you a meal? Can we, you know, the Goldbergs over here, can we do something to just little signs of hope? We're not out to change the world in that way. We're out to announce that this is our Father's world. And that is the difference. I love the words of that old hymn. This is my Father's world. All around us is despair. And people convinced that nobody cares about this place. This must be some random sequence of whatevers. There's no God. And the people of God stand up and say, no, no. There's a master to this house. And we're stewards. And so we act this way. And we live this way. And we do these things. And every little thing of kindness and compassion and beauty and justice is a signpost of hope. Let's pray. Our prayer team will be up in the front after the service tonight, a couple members of them maybe, and if you need prayer, please you know, come find one of us and we'll pray with you. There could be some of you here who, who maybe not thought of the gospel this way before, that it is the story of God at work within his world to redeem it. And you're saying, you know what? I do need this. I do need new creation inside my heart. I'm, I'm stuck. I'm stained. I'm this and that. Let Jesus tonight do a miracle in your life and your heart by making you new tonight. But probably for many of us, we can say, all right, Holy Spirit, what am I steward of? Give me the grace 
to steward it in a way that speaks of a master who will return. Father, teach us to manage our money, our time, invest in our relationships, all of it. We surrender it to you, Lord. None of it is ours. It's yours. It belongs to you. We we, we acknowledge that. We confess it. It's yours, Jesus. May we not be like the rich fool in Luke 12 who hoards. May we be like the wise steward who distributes, makes sure the house runs. Holy Spirit, would you convict each of us? Show us the ways. Thank you that we're your people. Thank you that by your grace you've made us yours. Thank you that each of us are living signposts. Because of your work, Jesus, we are a new creation. It's come in us. Make us people that announce it, speak of it, point to it, and bring hope. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen.